Well, we're on the last session that pertains to this period of time called the Tribulation. It's been long, but uh, I didn't write it. <laughs> I'm just reading it, <laughs> basically. So, this is what God intends, and as we said before, His revelation is always adequate. It seems from our perspective long, but I think it also gives us a lot of detail concerning what God is going to do in the future. So, it is uh, sufficient for what uh, we need. So, this session 20, we have a focus on Babylon and in order to understand Babylon, let me give you a little background. You probably have more than the average group. But uh, the fall of Babylon is recorded in two chapters. So we have two whole chapters in the book of Revelation devoted simply to the fall of Babylon. So we want to take a close look at what Babylon is all about. In our outline here, this is the last part of the tribulation. After we saw the seven seal scrolls, subdivision of part, uh, division two, we have the trumpet judgments, eight through eleven. We looked at the heavenly explanation, and we just completed fifteen through eighteen, which are the final plagues. And one of those plagues alluded to the fall of Babylon or related to Babylon, the last one. And also we had an announcement in chapter 14, kind of giving us a preview of fallen, fallen is Babylon. And now we have the record of the book of Revelation of the fall of Babylon. Uh, first, in order to appreciate it and understand it, we need to understand what Babylon is all about. We saw preparation for wrath, the final plagues, the pouring out of wrath. Chapter 16, those were the bold judgments. That's why we say pouring out. And the last part is a particular wrath or particular emphasis on Babylon. I'm using P's as the alliteration there. Let's see, do I have that on your outline? Yeah. So we have the particular wrath. Subdividing that, we could divide the particular wrath into two major parts. I see chapter 16 as a description of Babylon, describing what Babylon is all about. And even the description, we have to kind of remind ourselves of where the concept comes from, all the way back from the Old Testament. I divided this part into two more parts, verses 1 through 6 and 7 through 18 of chapter 17. 1 through 6 is the illumination concerning Babylon, and then we'll have the interpretation of what Babylon is all about. But we need to kind of go back and take a look at this concept of Babylon. So let me give you a little bit of background uh, concerning Babylon. The origin of the concept of Babylon goes all the way back to Genesis chapters uh, 10 uh, verses 8 through 11. 
And more specifically, we'll also look at uh, Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. So Babylon basically goes back to the descendants of Ham. That's the context of uh, the Genesis 10 passage. A particular son by the name of Cush, who had a, another son by the name of Nimrod, who appears to be the leader that is in view in uh, Genesis chapter 11, the incident pertaining to the Tower of Babel. Nimrod seems to be the first individual that organized uh, a rebellion against God on a more extensive kind of organized basis. Nimrod somewhat represents the worldview, the thought of the totalitarian mindset. In other words, the mindset of organizing on a on a broad scale, uh, an idea that man can govern himself apart from God. If man simply organizes together collectively, and in that culture, Nimrod would be representative of that mindset. So that's kind of the mindset behind the Tower of Babel. A self-sufficient, a ego-centered government or organization which is ultimately rebellion against God. God commanded that uh, Noah and his family uh, spread throughout the earth, fill the earth, and multiply a reissuing of the command that was given to Adam and Eve to basically fill the earth with descendants and to rule over it, all the way to Genesis 1. Now, sin interrupted that in Genesis 3, and now we have the outworking of it at Babel on a, on a, a greater scale, in terms of a governmental or a kingdom scale, headed by a person that uh, takes that role upon himself of totalitarian leader. So, the origin goes all, back, all the way back to Genesis 10, 8 through 11. And in Genesis 11, we see the outworking of it without the mention of Nimrod, but it's man organizing, self-sufficiently leaving God out to build this tower. Some believe that it was an effort to build a structure that was stable. There's memories of the Genesis flood and man desires to reach to the heavens to avoid another cataclysmic event like the Genesis Flood. And it's to reach to the heavens. And it may also be somewhat... Uh, I don't want to spiritualize it, but more symbolic of man reaching God on his own efforts by building a structure that reaches into the heavens. Man raising his fist against God, ignoring the means by which God has provided... In terms of coming to him, man wants to do it on his own efforts and is done on a broad, large national scale. Uh, that's the roots and that's the beginning of Babylon. Uh, Babel, just geographically, would have been located uh, in the same spot as Babylon. In other words, later on, this would be the site of Babylon. So it goes all the way back to 
the Fertile Crescent along the Euphrates River. Uh, this is where Babylon would have been located. This is the site of the archaeological site of Babylon. That's where Babel was. And there's evidence of ziggurats throughout this area. Uh, there's one at Ur. There's others uh, along the Euphrates River uh, that reminds of the ziggurat that uh, was probably built at the Tower of Babel. So Babel is the background to Babylon. And Babylon is actually the background to what we have in uh, the book of Revelation. So when the Jews, remember this is Jewish eschatology, when Jews thought of Babylon, their thoughts uh, related to ancient Babylon and that was the kingdom that destroyed the nation of Israel. So, all of those thoughts are associated with the concept of Babylon. The idea of totalitarian government that uh, is bent on destroying the people of God. That is raising its fist against God in defiance of Him. Self-sufficient. Doing things its own way. Leaving God out. That's the imagery behind Babylon. The outcome of Babylon, we have these different dynasties. Uh, we have a dynasty in 1885 B.C. that ran through about 1595. Uh, this is before Moses. This is before the children of Israel. This is patriarchal time. Uh, Babylon, behind the scenes, became... Uh, became a, a source of sorcery, demon activity, false worship, all of these concepts that we see full-blown later on in the later dynasties of Babylon that the Israelites had to encounter. We have later dynasties, the second dynasty, 626 to 538 B.C., that's the dinosaur, uh, dynasty where Nebuchadnezzar was the prominent leader of that time that eventually took the nation of Israel into captivity. So that's kind of the historical background. Jewish people would remember this background. They would remember this history and particularly the captivity at the hands of the Babylonians. They were ones that destroyed the temple. They're the ones that destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They were the ones that eventually took all of the nation of Israel captive. And they were the ones that uh, suffered through the exile. Many of them in Babylon and some of them scattered throughout the, the known world. That's the background of the concept of Babylon. There's another little sketch of ancient Babylon. And notice at the center of it, we have the ziggurat that was prominent even in later history. This is Saddam Hussein's reconstruction of the ancient site of Babylon, which is on the site of Babel. Uh, there are not too many archaeological remains dating that far back, but these remains would date back certainly to the uh, second dynasty of the Babylonian Empire. Just a few photographs that my friend sent me. 
uh, it's been developed further than what these photographs show. Uh, this was the stage at which I can't remember when was the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, 91. So since then, a lot more development took place. Press the wrong button. Again, I showed you uh, kind of the entrance to this park that uh, displays the reconstruction. So the concept of Babylonianism, which we are talking about in uh, these two chapters, 17 and 18, it has its beginning in the Old Testament. It was a political system, it was an economic system, and it was a religious system. All antagonistic to God. Epitomized by ancient Babylon. So we could call it Babylonianism, and that's the essence of what we have in chapter 17 and 18. The destruction of Babylonianism. God is going to do away with that. And to the Jews, this is important. To us, uh, we don't think so much about it because we didn't go through that background and that history. But this represents the final uh, rebellion of man against God. And the ultimate rebellion of man against God. So we have the rise of Babylonianism in the Old Testament. Uh, we have the spread of it on a global scale, represented by the ancient Babylonian empires, where we had this mindset, this worldview uh, that permeated all of the cultures. Uh, a lot of the, because it's, we're going to see some descriptions in chapter 17 that alludes to the influence of ancient Babylon. If you trace back a lot of the mystery religions that came out of Babylon, if you trace back a lot of the religions that uh, the Romans and even the Greeks had uh, find some roots back in Babylon, back in the Babylonian empires. So religion and false religion is intimately tied to the Babylonian culture of ancient days. It spread globally. This, these, these concepts, these particularly religious ideas. I could give you a lot more uh, background, but for the sake of uh, time, we'll just kind of give you a, a, an overview of it. Uh, the essence of it involves a worldview, a worldview that was polytheistic, a worldview that uh, was antagonistic to the one true God, recognizing there was a an alternative, a, a true God, the, the God of the, uh, the Jewish people, Yahweh. They were familiar with Yahweh. They rejected that God and had other gods in, uh, in place of the one true God. The essence of Babylonianism, it had a politics of persecution. It persecuted the people of God throughout its history. And they were the ultimate persecutors during the time of the exile. It had an economy of greed, a self-centered, egotistical economy that served man. Uh, this is the essence of it. All of these features we're going to see in Revelation 17 and 18. It was a religion with demons behind it. Overt demon worship, part of the Babylonian uh, ancient culture, 
and idolatry motivated by by uh, by demons. So we have these three elements. There's a political element. There's an economic element. There's a religious element. We saw all of those elements in the beast of Revelation chapter 13. Now it's going to be epitomized by the empire, the final empire of the beast. And that final empire is going to be destroyed in Revelation 17 and 18. So Babylonianism has its rise in the Old Testament. It's spread globally. It encompasses that worldview. And now we're going to look at its doom. It's going to be destroyed. The doom of Babylon. That's 17 and 18. What's at the focus here is a harlot. And let's read the text and see what... It has to say about this harlot. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls. What? (laughs) Pardon me? (laughs) Oh, can I show that in church? I don't know. I guess I can. (laughs) That's right. It's in the Bible. And one of the seven angels, I was not hoping that you'd study it in too much detail. (laughs) One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, notice the relationship to the last set of bowl judgments, came and spoke with me saying, come here. That's similar to what we saw in the uh, uh, seal judgments as well. Come here. I will show you. So now... This angel is going to reveal some th- some things uh, some things in another vision. I I shall show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Uh, most of these details are are, are going to be uh, interpreted for us. Uh, just to kind of jump ahead. The many waters represent the nations, just so that uh, um, it, it's not totally confusing as we go through uh, the individual verses here. I shall show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. In other words, this is a harlot that is sitting on, or the imagery here, uh, this is uh, 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 a personage or a concept that is sitting on national entities with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. Now, now think in terms of the imagery here. Uh, we have this harlot, prostitute, if you will, that has interaction and relationship with the kings of the earth. Uh, they're committing acts of immorality. Now, in this context, uh, the immorality probably is, is literal immorality, but I think there's more to it in this context because all of the other associations that we have, as well as some of the details that we'll have uh, later on. Uh, immorality sometimes is an image 
of unfaithfulness in terms of uh, spiritual things. In other words, a relationship with false gods. And we've already developed some of the background that relates to this unfaithfulness in terms of not only demons, but false doctrine and false gods. So I think that's part of the imagery here. This harlot, uh, it's a picture of or uh, an image of immorality, just like the photograph or the, the sketch there. Immorality involving the kings of the earth with this harlot. Uh and those who dwell on the earth. There's the earth dwellers again. So it does not only include the leadership or the kings, but involves the, the citizens, citizenry as well. The earth dwellers. There's another phrase in the context of unbelievers. They were made drunk with the wine of him, immorality. In other words, they've engaged in these acts to the point that these acts take over their faculties. That's what wine does. It, it intoxicates. And it uh, puts people in a position of doing things that perhaps normally they may not do. And verse 3, and he carried me away in the spirit in the wilderness. So John is carried away and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast this woman is full of blasphemous names, so this is kind of exposing the character of this woman. Having seven heads and ten horns. Now, that's going to be interpreted for us in a moment, so let's wait till we get to that point. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Having in her hand a gold cup full of the abominations and of unclean things of her immorality. It's uh, imagery of wealth, opulence, greed, all of the ideas behind materialism. Adorned with gold, precious stones, pearls, etc. But also a uh, gold cup full of abominations. In other words, any imaginable imma uh, immorality uh, uh, and all the other associated sins. These are the associations with this harlot or this woman. And then we have her identified here in verse 5. And upon her forehead a name was written, a mystery. In other words, we have a symbol. This is a hint that this is imagery. This is to evoke imagery that goes back representing a concept or an idea here. And here's where the background of uh, Babylon comes in because uh, the name is Babylon the Great. To the Jew, Babylon the Great reminded people of Nebuchadnezzar and all that that empire represented. The empire that destroyed the temple, destroyed the nation of Israel, that destroyed Jerusalem, that took the people of Israel into captivity. The empire that was idolatrous, the empire that was demon-motivated, demons behind them. Uh, that empire that had false religion. This is Babylon. This is her name. She's associated with Babylon. She is the epitome of Babylonianism. And she's riding the beast. The imagery is she basically has influence. She is directing the beast. 
Now, in this case, the beast properly represents the empire. Now, Antichrist is the head, but in the imagery here, it's probably the empire that she influences. So she's exerting her influence and has a position over it. Now, later on, we're going to see that the empire rids itself of her and destroys the harlot. So at some point, uh, Antichrist uh, does away with uh, the religious aspect because he claims to be God himself. We'll see some of that as we move through the passage. So we have her identified and the epitome of Babylon the Great. She's the mother of the concept of being the father of or the mother of has the idea of the source of these things. And we, like I said, we can trace false religion all the way back to Babylon or to Babel, rather. Uh, That's why it says she's the mother of the abominations of the earth. And I think what is in view here is all false ideas, all false doctrine, all false worldviews. She is the source of it. She is Babylonianism personified as a harlot. Uh, The harlotry is the idea that uh, this is something that is uh, unfaithfulness to the one true God in its ultimate sense. So she's identified here with the name Babylon and the description mother of harlots. Marlet, uh, mother of all illicit relationships that are separate and even antagonistic to a true relationship to the one true God and also the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. So she's a persecuting entity. And the Jews would be reminded of the persecution they endured at the hands of ancient Babylon. Uh, the woman, uh, or I saw the woman drunk, in other words, to the excess of the blood of the saints. So the imagery, instead of drinking wine, she gets drunk on the blood of the saints. She kills them. And with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus, and when I saw her, I wondered greatly. In other words, I'm ama- John was amazed. John was impressed with what he saw. That's the vision. So, in the vision, who is the harlot? Uh, We're going to have some notes that help us to interpret it. Uh, There are different views. During the Reformation, the, the Reformers used chapter 17 as a picture of the city of Rome and uh, Roman Catholicism. Uh, other interpreters were more direct. Well, actually, the uh, reformers associated it with the, the Roman Catholic Church. Actually, the second view is the uh, reformers' view. I'm sorry, City of Rome is one of the uh, views that some of the commentators take. Uh, probably not Rome. Again, it's a spiritualized, spiritualized interpretation. I think there's going to be a literal Babylon on the very site of ancient Babylon. It'll be reconstructed. And it will serve probably as the political headquarters of the Antichrist. 
And this will come about, if not before, at least during the period of the tribulation. I think the Antichrist will have different places where he will rule from. Politically, I think everything is going to come out of literal Babylon. So I don't uh, accept the city of Rome, which is related to uh, Roman Catholicism. That was the Protestant Reformation viewpoint. Uh, the idealist doesn't see it as a literal city, but more kind of a, a principle, as they do everything in the book of Revelation. Uh, a view that has been popular through church history is it represents the apostate church. But again, it's related to the church. So it's spiritualizing and putting the church in the tribulation. If the church is gone, then it can't be the apostatized church. We're talking about the tribulation period. More than likely, the best view is, if it'll come up here, it's the epitome of perverted religion. That's, that's who the woman is. That's who the harlot is. It's the religious aspect of uh, this threefold empire. And it would include, it would probably, during the tribulation period, there's going to be a, a uniting of all false religion. There's only, only going to be two, two options. There's going to be the option of false doctrine and false religion. And I think the, the system is going to foster a unity. It may be a unity of Islam. Now, there's, there are some books out right now that try to associate Islam there's also a book by, uh, let's see, what's the guy's name? Hanegraaff, uh, that identifies the woman as the Roman Catholic Church. Now, he's a modern person that takes basically the, uh, the, reform, the, the reformer's viewpoint in terms of associating the Catholic Church. I think it's bigger than that. And it's bigger than Islam. I think it includes and, there, and it will uh, represent the gathering of all religions under one religion under one empire, under one political system. And eventually, the Antichrist himself will get rid of this religious entity. So I see it in the broadest sense that you can see the harlot. It would include demonism. It would include Satan worship. It would include cults. It would include false religion in terms of... Uh, that that is outside of Orthodox and Biblical Christianity. It's all going to kind of amalgamate into one world religion. Just like the politics is going to be organized under one totalitarian political system, the religion of the Great Tribulation is also going to join together. And the economy is going to be controlled by this one world system. So it's going to be like a harlot that... Uh, is overarching over all things. So that's the identity of the harlot. Does that make sense? Now, yes, future. Yeah, during the period of the tribulation. Now, it's not going to just be turned on when that covenant is signed, so we may see the forerunners of that. In other words, we may see all of these different entities, but during the tribulation, it's going to unite in some way. And probably the Antichrist is going to be charismatic enough to pull 
all these loose ends together in terms of one unified religious entity. Now, it's difficult to see how Islam is going to submit to that, but Islam is a false religion. And by the way, Islam is also a religion of the ancient East, of these ancient cultures related to, uh, to some of these ancient Babylonian cultures. Somehow, Antichrist is going to pull them all together, and all of that religious idea ideas will be part of this empire until he claims to be God himself. So that's how I see it in terms of uh, what it represents. Babylon over here. Jerusalem over here. Babylon is probably the political uh, the political uh, capital. Jerusalem seems to be a spiritual capital. And Antichrist may function as a religious leader in Jerusalem because that's the very place where he will proclaim himself to be God eventually. And then he will destroy the woman uh, or the harlot. We'll see that in a moment. <clears throat> so there's Babylon. Uh, there's present day the airfield in Iraq. It's not too far from Babylon, by the way, that airfield. Uh, the harlot, verse 1. It's global in terms of its size. We're talking about the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. So it's global. The many waters, all of the nations. Another characteristic, it has immoral influence. Both spiritual and uh, literal physical immorality. Because she's riding the beast, at least she is influencing the political and perhaps has some control over the politics. There's an external attractiveness to her. In other words, people are going to think this is a good thing. Obviously, if they thought it was a bad thing, they wouldn't attach themselves to it. So there's an external attractiveness to it. The Bible describes her as full of abominations. Uh, there's internal corruption that's also in view there, full of abominations and unclean things of her immorality. So the external is this surface beauty, if you will. And we have the source of her abominations is this worldview that we call Babylonianism. Verse 6, she's a persecutor of the saints. These are the major characteristics of the harlot. The harlot is global in size, immoral influence, immoral in terms of religion and sensuality, political control, she's on the beast, external attract attractiveness, internal corruption, source of abomination. She's the mother of the abominations and, and uh, antagonistic to the things of God and particularly persecutor of the saints. Uh, she is the one responsible. Religion oftentimes is the uh, instrument that is used by Satan to 
persecute and martyr the saints. That's throughout the history of Old Testament and even New Testament and the history of the church as well. Uh, so that's the harlot. So we have the illumination, 17, 1 through 6. The last part of chapter 17, 17 through 18. John is going to receive an interpretation, beginning verse 7. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I shall tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast. Notice there are two entities that carries her. And notice the emphasis that uh, she is not only over the beast, but also dependent. The beast is carrying her which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Now, we've seen that already. So now he's going to give us the interpretation of that. The beast, so he's going to begin by uh, interpreting the beast. The beast that you saw was, is not, and is about to come out of the abyss and to go to destruction. There's a summary of the beast right there. Now, what is that allusion to? You remember we, we saw phraseology relating to the beast in another context. Do you remember where we saw that? Remember chapter 13? Exactly. His death and his resurrection. He was, was not, death. And then it says that uh, he's going to have something beyond death. Uh, this is an allusion to Revelation chapter 13 uh, and is about to come up out of the abyss and to go to destruction. Now, it looks forward to where all of this is headed. So, this is interpretive. The beast that you saw is the same beast that is in uh, chapter 13. He's the same personage that comes out of the abyss related to the, 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 the uh, Satan himself. And notice those who dwell on the earth. There's another little reference to earth dwellers in the context of unbelievers. And those who dwell on the earth will, will wonder. In other words, they'll be amazed. Uh, they'll uh, be surprised at, at, uh, at this personage whose name has not been written. In other words, those Earth dwellers, their names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. These are unbelievers very clearly. When they see the beast that he was, there it is again, and is not and will come. Another illusion. Two of them, very similar. Allusions to the seeming death and seeming resurrection of the personage. Now, here he's interpreting the beast as epitomized by Antichrist. But I think we, it's probably a combination of uh, Antichrist and the kingdom together as united. Okay? Verse 9. Here's the mind which has wisdom. Now he's going to tell us the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, they use, uh, those that believe that it's the city of Rome, city, the city of Rome supposedly was built on seven mountains, so here is a little piece of information they use to tie that. 
but I don't think it's Rome at all. There's seven mountains. It doesn't identify specifically where these mountains are, but we're going to have this. Let's read on. And they are, now we have the interpretation, they are seven kings. The seven heads are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. So what is the reference to the five have fallen? If they're kings... What do you think is in view here? Now, this is the interpretation that is given to John. Seven heads are probably what? Rulers of particular kingdoms of the past. Uh, Probably the best view is we have five of them, it says. Um... Five have fallen. More than likely, the five that have fallen represent all of the kingdoms or the kings that uh, epitomize these kingdoms that not only persecuted but uh, opposed the nation of Israel, beginning with Egypt. Beginning with the people even before they became a nation. You might be able to name the others. What uh, empire epitomized by their king uh, troubled the nation of Israel? What's the next one, do you think? There's five of them. Rome is one of them, or the Roman Empire, but not yet. Babylonians are one of them, but not yet. There was one that preceded them. The Assyrians that took the northern kingdom into captivity before the southern kingdom fell. So probably Assyria. Now, there's a little bit of debate, but most of the conservative scholars agree with these five. Five have fallen. They've come and gone. Now Babylon, as you identified, and there's one between Babylon and Rome. Greek, the Greek Empire. Oh, Medo-Persia. I'm sorry. You're right. Medo-Persia. And then the Greek Empire. Those are the ones that have fallen. Now, he's speaking to John in the first century. So, John is hearing that five have fallen. Probably Egyptian Empire, Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the kings that represent them. This seems to be the best uh, that we can put together from the interpretation that John is given. Now, one is would be what? Rome. In other words, that is the empire that existed when, uh, when John is seeing this vision. So, the one that is, is Rome, more than likely, or the Roman Empire. But there's another one. The other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must. There's a little word, day, that we used last time that we've seen in other contexts. 
in this context, as we saw in the other context, the, the word must here uh, conveys the idea that this is a necessity, a divine necessity. In other words, this is something that is part of the plan that God has. These things must take place. This is the outworking of God bringing history to its culmination. So, he must remain a little while. And we know specifically, because Daniel tells us, that little while is over a seven year period. So, it looks at a future kingdom. Uh, Also in Daniel, Daniel predicts a kingdom revived, a Roman Empire revived that is yet to come. Those are the seven heads. So, go back to Revelation 13 and you see the beast with the seven heads. John interprets it in Revelation chapter 17. Uh, We saw them in another context earlier. Here's the interpretation. Now, the beast which you saw in verse 11, the beast which you saw, which, or, or which was, and is not, his, is himself also an eighth, and is one of the seven. Uh, I think what he's talking about here. Uh, he's one of the seven. In other words, he's a, an amalgamation of all seven. And as being kind of the epitome of all of these kingdoms, remember he showed characteristics. He's like a lion. He's like a bear. Remember that imagery there? It seems he is the amalgamation or the accumulation of all of the evil qualities of all of the seven. But he is an eighth. So, he's more than just simply leader over this Roman, uh, revived Roman Empire. He's an eighth in that he encompasses the revived ten nations. Are you following me here? Remember, there's a ten nation group. He is not only over them, but his empire is going to extend even beyond that to be an eighth, which is a totalitarian worldwide system. Uh, I think that's probably the best interpretation of what's in view here. Does that make sense? Okay. So he's an eight and is one of the seven and he goes to destruction. That's his ultimate destiny. So we have Babylon the Great. Kind of a family tree here with the harlot. That's the religious aspect. She rides the other aspects. Uh, We have the origin in Babel. We have past six empires from the future perspective. We would include Rome amongst the five. There's a seventh empire, a future one, that extends to be global, which becomes the eighth. If you want to chart it. And that would include the beast. Here's the religious aspect, the harlot. The beast would encompass the political and the economic. And the three will include the entire kingdom. Uh, That's chapter 17. Let's finish reading the passage. 
Uh, and the beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth, and one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. Verse 12. And the ten horns, which you saw, now he's going to interpret the ten horns, are ten kings. These are the ten kings that Daniel predicted. That Remember the ten toes? Something happens to three of them. Uh, he seems sometime during the tribulation to destroy three of them. But we have ultimate, or uh, totally ten of them who have not yet received a kingdom, but they, will, they, they receive authority as king with the beast for one hour. Very short-lived. But that's the power base that he uses to rise to world prominence. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. So they submit to the authority of the beast. In other words, Antichrist. Verse 14, these will wage war against the Lamb. So we have a totalitarian system that uh, rebels against the Lamb. They will wage war against the Lamb. And the Lamb, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, John's favorite description of Christ. The Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. We have the first mention of Jesus under this title. And this ties it to uh, Revelation chapter 19 where when He comes... Uh, he will be identified as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. So this little diminutive lamb that is a sacrificial lamb, an innocent, weak creature that died for the sins of the world, he's going to be Lord of Lords and King of Kings. The ultimate in terms of power. Uh, he will overcome them. Now this looks ahead to chapter 19. Verse 15, and he said to me, the waters, here's the interpretation of verse 1. Remember this harlot? Come, I will show you. Verse 1, the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Verse 15, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So it's global. It encompasses all of the nations. And back to the horns, the ten horns which you saw, and the beast, these will hate the harlot. Here's where they turn against it. Uh, he wants to be worshipped as the only true God. So he wants to get rid of the harlot. He wants to get rid of the religious aspect. So these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate. And naked, and will eat her flesh, and will burn her up with fire. That's the imagery of destruction. So, the political and the economic aspect of the kingdom, epitomized by Antichrist himself, uh, because he wants to be worshipped, and only he to be worshipped, he's going to get rid of all other systems of worship. He's going to destroy the perverted world religious system in the tribulation. So the kingdom itself is going to turn on itself and this is part of its destruction. 
part of the egotism, the egotism of the Antichrist is going to also undermine the kingdom. And then verse 17, for God, notice God is sovereign through all of this. God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose. Another note of sovereignty of God. All of this is just part of a plan to eliminate and destroy and end evil. And Antichrist himself is going to serve the ends of God. God puts it in his heart to accomplish what God intends. That's a very strong statement. In fact, this is probably the strongest statement of the sovereignty of God in all of the book of Revelation. God is the one that put it in their hearts to execute his purpose. Very clear. His purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God should be fulfilled. So there's a time frame. And Revelation 18 and 19 is at the end of the reign of false religion. The reign of the false political system that has the economic system as well. So the words of God are about to be fulfilled. And then verse 18, and the woman... This is the only note concerning the woman. The woman who you saw is the great city. Uh, she's a symbol of the city of Babylon, which reigns over the kings of the earth. So religion is going to be prominent and it's going to rule the kings of the earth. But uh, Antichrist is going to turn and destroy the woman and eventually the kingdom will, will crumble. So that's chapter 17. Any questions on that chapter before we take a look at the next chapter? Chapter 18, uh, we're going to see the destruction of Babylon. Uh, we've seen already the turning of the political and economic or the Antichrist on the religious aspect. The emphasis of chapter 18 is political and economic. And the political and economic is going to be destroyed as well. Verses 1 through 8, we see the downfall. Now, we have a lot of illusions. Uh, I didn't give you uh, a lot of them, but there's a lot of illusions to uh, Jeremiah 31 and I believe Ezekiel 13, which both speak of the judgment of Babylon. The judgments that are described in those two passages, uh, Isaiah 13 and Ezekiel, or uh, Jeremiah 31 and 32, they have never been fulfilled historically unless you spiritualize those passages and some scholars do that. But the description just does not match anything in history. The descriptions are probably predictive of what we have here in Revelation 17 and 18. I see their fulfillment here and there's still yet future during the period of the, the tribulation. 
So these prophecies are rooted in the Old Testament. Uh, the passages that pertain to the destruction of Babylon. So that still is yet future. God has not done it. So chapter 17 and 18 is the, uh, the New Testament prophecy and prediction. And it puts it at the end of the period of tribulation. So let's look at these few verses in uh, chapter 18. Uh, after these things I saw, so John is seeing another uh, vision here. I saw another angel coming down from heaven. Angels again involved in judgment. Having great authority, so he exercising authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. So this is a spectacular angel. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, this is reminiscent of what we saw in chapter 14. In fact, it's identical. Uh, here is the fulfillment of what was pronounced in chapter 14 when that angel pronounced the fall of Babylon. So now we have the angel saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. So this Babylonian worldview or this concept, this religious concept is fallen and she has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit. And demons are behind false religion, perverted religion. And a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. So there's the religious system fallen, fallen. And all the nations have drunk of the wine of the past. Just a reminder, we already saw that in chapter 17. Have drunk of the wine of the passion of immorality. Imagery of unfaithful worship. And the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. So opulence, wealth was part of the system. Others became wealthy as a result of the whole system. Uh, beware of Babylonianism. Now, here's a way that you could apply some of the things that we have in chapter 18. So this will be my kind of an applicational slide. A warning. We live amongst false doctrine. We live even amongst churches that teach things contrary to Scripture. Uh, we live in a culture, in some cases, that overtly worships Satan. A lot of the elements that we have in uh, chapter 17 and 18 are amongst us right now. We don't have to wait to the Great Tribulation. We have the roots of all of these things already amongst us. So we need to beware as uh, believers even in the age in which we live in. There's some characteristics and there's some things to be aware of that I think we have, by way of application, warnings of in the book of Revelation, and particularly uh, chapter 18. Uh, one thing is that ultimately false religion houses or demons, uh, it's a, a dwelling place of demons. All false doctrine, all false religion. That's verse 2. 
So beware of false doctrine. We're warned throughout Scripture concerning false doctrine. 1 John 5.19 We know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This was true in the first century. It's true now. And it will be true ultimately during the period of tribulation. So we can be warned with some of the things that we have in terms of Babylon. Uh, verse 3, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality. The kings, see we read that. Uh, fallen, fallen is Babylon. There's the evil influence that false religion has. It permeates a culture. And I think it's permeated our culture. So we need to beware of the influences around us. Uh, four and five, believers are called out. And we are continually uh, to be called out from the system. We can't leave the world, but uh, we need to be careful that the world doesn't contaminate us with its false ideas, its false ideology, and eventually the false religion that comes as a result. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. These are saints. Uh, there's going to be believers all over the world that are going to be affected by the system. Not just Babylon, but we are to come out of the world. And here's a call to the saints that actually live there. And it's, by way of application, a call to us as well to come out. Uh, beware of its influence and come out of it. That you may not participate in her sins and that you may not receive of her plagues. So it's kind of a warning. 6 through 8 speak of the judgment that she will experience. Uh, God, uh, verse 5, for her sins have piled up as high as heaven. Uh, that's possibly an illusion. If we're talking about Babylon here and we're thinking of Babel, it's like her sins are piled up brick by brick in that ziggurat that uh, was built in Genesis chapter 11. That's probably the background and the imagery here. In the same way, her sins are piled up one brick at a time and it says it's reaching into heaven here. I take it as an allusion to that background. Her sins have piled up as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquity. And now the instruction is pay her back even as she has paid. So it's punishment in... Uh, Proportion to sin, pay her back even as she has paid and give her back to her double according to her deeds in the cup which she has mi uh, mixed, mixed twice as much for her. Well, you might say, well, that's, that's not justice. Well, if you remember in Leviticus, some crimes required double payment. Uh, I think one of them, if you killed the ox of someone, you're to replace it double. Because what happened in that situation, 
Not only did uh, your neighbor lose the animal, but he lost all of the production and everything that goes with it. So a fair judgment would be to compensate that neighbor double fold, to compensate for the loss of not only the animal, but the production and all that was associated with the animal. So this is still justice. This is not imbalanced justice. I think what it is allusion to are some of those passages that you have in the law that are like this. Remember, this is Jewish uh, eschatology. So pay her back as she is paid and give back to her double according to her deeds, etc. Verse 7, to the degree. Here's another passage that seems to indicate degrees of punishment. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensually to the same degree. So it's in proportion. Give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am not a widow and will never see mourning. So there's the egotistic attitude that permeates that system. Uh, so she will be judged, verses 6 through 8. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will burn, be burnt up with fire. For the Lord God who judges her is strong. In other words, he is capable, he's um, uh, omnipre- or omnipotent and capable of bringing what is deserved. Verse 9, this moves into a new section of this part of the vision. Verses 1 through 8 is the downfall of Babylonianism. Now we have basically a lament or to be in... Alliteration with these there, despair, 9 through 20. Uh, We have three um, notes of despair in 9 through 20, three groups. Uh, There's some similarities between each of them. And uh, let's begin by reading verse 9. First of all, the first group are the kings and the kings of the earth. Who committed, we were continually reminded of the association that they had and the immorality that was involved. Kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment saying, Woe, woe, the great city, Babylon, the strong city. For in one hour your judgment has come. So it's a, 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 almost a, a lament. It's a, not a song, but a, a lament by the kings of the earth. So the despair, we have the monarchs, and you use M in this alliteration, uh, verses 9 through 10. The kings mourn. Beginning in verse 11, we have another group that starts with an M, the merchants. The merchants mourn in 11 through 17. And the emphasis is on the economic ties that they had. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her. 
because no one buys their cargoes anymore, the cargoes of gold and silver. These are all of the luxuries, all of the necessities that would be prominent and common during the tribulation time. The gold and the silver, that's always precious. Precious stones, pearls, fine linen. I uh, can't remember the number of categories here. Uh, purple and silk. So we have garments, you have uh, precious stones, you have precious metals, every kind of citron wood, so the most expensive of woods, every article of ivory, all of these commodities. Every article made from very costly wood and bronze. So you have metals, bronze and iron, marble, uh, different building materials. Uh, different foods, cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense, uh, spices, incense or perfume, frankincense. Uh, that would be a, a spice, I believe. Uh, other things, wine and olive oil. Now, here are some staples, fine flour, wheat, animals, cattle, sheep. The list goes on. Cargoes of horses, chariots, slave. A long list here. Uh, notice the end there, and slaves and human souls, basically, human lives. Uh, so they traded in slavery, or they will in the future. And the fruit you long for has gone from you. All things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men will no longer find them. So all of these economic aspects of the kingdom are going to be destroyed. The merchants of these things who became rich from them will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, see the similarity? They're at a distance. They're mourning. They say the same thing as the king said, woe, woe, the great city. She was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. So that's the morning of the merchants. Actually, 17 is the last one. Again, very rapidly in short order, in one hour, such great wealth has been laid waste. And every shipmaster and every passenger and every sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance. Actually, that moves into the next one. I think I got that verse wrong there. Uh, or wait a minute. Yeah, I'm mixing them up. Um, Now, actually, it breaks in the middle of the verse there. So in one hour, her great, uh, such great wealth has been laid waste. So actually, the, uh, the merchants, the end of their mourning or lament ends in the first part of verse 17. And then the uh, next part of verse 17 deals with the shipmasters. It's kind of a modern day cargo ship. Uh, each of those is the size of a railroad car to give you an idea of trade that goes on. Uh, trade will be quite extensive during the tribulation period, but it will all come to an end. Uh, we see common elements in all three of them. Uh, we'll see these same elements with the shipmasters beginning in verse 17. There's sensuality. Notice in uh, 
Verse 9, the kings who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously. Uh, Verse 11, dealing with the merchants of the earth, they weep and mourn over her. All of these descriptions of cargo are issues that feed our sensuality. Uh, We also have mourning in all three of them. They all mourn over the fall of Babylon. They all speak of the destruction of Babylon. Uh, We also have a reason at the end. And we have woes pronounced on, on them by all three of them. We have mention of the great city, Babylon. And it all speaks in terms of this taking place in one hour. Verse 11 at the end there. For in one hour your judgment has come. 17. For in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. Notice at the end of verse 19. For in one hour she has been laid waste. So you have a lot of common elements here. So the monarchs mourn, the merchants mourn, and the last group, uh, 17 through 20, the mariners mourn. These are the shipmasters in verse 17. And every shipmaster, these are mariners, and every passenger and sailor, this speaks of extensive worldwide trade through the seas. Every shipmaster and passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance. Notice their separation, distance. They're looking at the destruction from a distance. And crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, this is the destruction, saying, what city is like the great city? There's the reference to a great city. And they threw dust on their heads. That's a... image of mourning and were crying out and weeping and mourning saying woe woe there's the woes the third set and the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth for in one hour she has been laid waste so we have the despair of three groups and then it shifts In verse 20, we have rejoicing. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. The saints will receive vindication. In terms of our application, we have uh, a heartbreaking ending. So beware of Babylonianism because it's only going to bring pain. Materialism, the things of the world, going to break your heart. Uh, The world system has different values than we do. So we need to beware that our values are different and biblical. Uh, The perishing is going to be rapid, so it'll be unexpected. So don't associate yourself with the world system. And ultimately, the world system in verse 24 is a persecuting entity. Let's read those verses. So heaven is to rejoice. Verse 21, and a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone. 
Now, in first century time, there were two millstones. There were there was the small millstone that a, a woman would use to grind grain for her family. And she would roll the stone over the grains, crushing them, producing wheat. There was also the larger production millstones that were about five foot high that were pulled by an animal, an ox or a donkey or some sort of an animal, to produce large quantities of wheat that people would grind in order to sell. Which one do you think is in view here? This is kind of an easy guess. (laughs) The large one. So the imagery is taking this large circular rock that was used probably weighing somewhere in the neighborhood of a ton that had to be pulled and walked only by an animal for large production of grain or wheat or uh, yeah wheat from the grain. Uh, in verse 21, this strong angel, it's going to take an angel to lift this thing, took the, up the stone like a great millstone. So this is the large one. And threw it into the sea. This is imagery. So imagine this large one ton millstone dropped into the ocean. What's going to happen? You're not going to see it very long because it's going to go to the bottom. Uh, That's the imagery. Thus, verse 21, Thus will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with vengeance and will not be found any longer going to sink to the bottom of the the ocean in the Persian Gulf, maybe. The imagery there uh, is that of the sudden destruction of Babylon, the great city. Babylon, the epitome of the empire, both political, economic, and religious. And the sound or the harping of the harps and musicians... It's kind of a concluding thing here to show the finality of all of this. So all the things that we know in terms of normal life, like music, uh, harpists, musicians, flute players, and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. This kind of finality, final destruction. No craftsman, in other words, everyday uh, working of metals, everyday craftsmanship of wood, etc., Uh, No craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill, in other words, normal, just grinding of everyday activity, will not be heard in you any longer. Uh, And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard. In other words, normal activities, marriages, no more. Babylon is done at this point in the tribulation. Uh, No marriages. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. So these were probably the most wealthy people, uh, much like the ship barons of today, because all the nations were deceived. A reminder of uh, the major influence and the major sin were deceived by their your sorcery. And in her was found. Here's the persecuting aspect, the blood of the saints, continually reminding us. Uh, of the attitude of the world system towards believers. Uh, Blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who've been slain of the earth. So that's the end of Babylon. 
we have the most extensive prophecy of all the judgments. This one is expanded to two chapters in the book of Revelation, showing the importance and how important Babylon was to Israel and how this final note fulfills Isaiah 13 and Jeremiah 51 and 52. So we've looked at the particular wrath um, described in chapter 17. We've seen the downfall of Babylon in chapter 18. We saw the despair and the last part is the doom uh, under the image of the millstone thrown into the, the sea. Uh, just concluding here, here's our timeline. The time frame for these last plagues. We have the fall of Babylon at the very end of the tribulation period. There's going to be a reference in chapter 19 to an, the battle of Armageddon, which we saw as the sixth trumpet judgment. We're going to have some more detail given to us of it. That'll be in chapter 19. That will be associated with the second coming of Christ. The last battle, Christ will end it with his coming. In fact, 19 doesn't even describe a battle. First uh, Thessalonians 2 says that he will slay the nations with the sword of his mouth. So it's going to be a very quick end to Armageddon. Uh, that's where the blood will flow for a distance of 200 miles to the bridles of the horses. So that kind of completes our timeline for this period of tribulation. And hopefully I've done justice to uh, the chronology of these events and tried to show the, the reasons why this is the arrangement that I've, I've given. So we've seen the seal judgments. We've seen the trumpet judgments. We've just completed the bowl judgments. Two of them, oops, two of the bowl judgments are expanded. We have the fall of Babylon, 17 and 18, simultaneous. I probably ought to rearrange this. Fall of Babylon at the end. Well, the reason I didn't is because we have this still mentioned in chapter 19, so I'll leave it alone. So we have Armageddon, which we'll look at uh, tomorrow when we look at chapter 19. Finally, <laughs> the judgment of the tribulation. There's still some associated with the second coming. We'll see them. But they're framed in a more positive note. They're framed in terms of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, so that ends this period called tribulation from Jesus Christ, chapters 4 through chapter 18. Tomorrow we will begin in church with... Uh, the third and final division of the book of Revelation that deals with uh, uh, primarily the second coming, chapter 19. There's a passage that I'm going to look at in the morning that uh, precedes the second coming. Uh, and then we will also in the afternoon look uh, more at the second coming and we'll also begin our, our, our look at the millennial kingdom, which is Revelation chapter 20, which is very positive. And we will participate in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, let's close in the word of prayer. Father, we are relieved for many reasons. One, that uh, we are completed this. <laughs> uh, 
this very uh, horrendous period of time. But most of all, uh, we are relieved that uh, we will not participate in these judgments. Uh, we will not be a part of that. We praise you that uh, we are not destined for wrath. Uh, we praise you that you have a plan and you have justice and will affect all of the wrath that we've looked at in great detail as you've given it in this great book of Revelation. And we didn't want to skip over any of these passages, so we had to endure looking at them. Uh, I hope it has impressed us with your righteousness, uh, with your holiness. I hope it's impressed us with the necessity of you to intervene in this way where these judgments are necessary in order to cleanse the earth, in order to end evil, in order to prepare that you may be able to reign over a kingdom that does not have any of these elements. So we praise you for that and we praise you for what the rest of the book will have for us in terms of some of the positive aspects. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.